Welcome to the Tennis with an Accent podcast. This is Matt Zemek with Saqib Ali, and we have our two regular in-house guests to help us make sense of everything that happened at the Billie Jean King USTA National Tennis Center at the 2019 United States Open, the last major of the year. It's now in the books. We have a lot to talk about, and uh, we thank uh, our friends at Red Circle, which you can find on Twitter at Get Red Circle. We thank our producer, Ari Russell, for working with us. And uh, this podcast is an unsponsored podcast, but we do wish to tell you that you know one of the friends of this podcast is and has been Australia's Stats Insider, which you can find at statsinsider.com.au, covering a lot of different sports. So we do ask you to continue to support and check out, and, and you support simply by going to their website, uh, support Stats Insider at statsinsider.com.au. So Sakib, you're going to get things rolling with our conversation. Let's go and, and explore the first question about the United States Open in New York. Hey, thanks, Matt, and uh, welcome, everyone. Every time uh, a slam is under the uh, in the books, uh, there's a lot to talk about, and this is uh, let's start with the men uh, and welcome Andrew and uh, Mert. First time in seven years, the U.S. Open final went five sets. Uh, I thought I was going to miss my first Grand Slam final in 20 years. I was driving from Pennsylvania and I was training, listening to commentary. And then I come home, met with breaks in the third set, and you know I didn't even take my shoes off. I just watched the match from the very end. So I'm sure you all were watching wherever you were. Uh, it was a very intense final. So let me just start with Andrew. Uh, what are what are the First takeaway, I know you have also done generation studies on tennis and we'll get to it, but this fans in the books, after 24 hours, how have you processed it? You called it a very close affair on your Twitter uh, live commentary feed. Uh, how do you look back uh, in the aftermath, what just transpired at the Billie Jean National Tennis Center? Well, uh, like a lot of people listening to this podcast, I watched it in the United States. I had... ESPN commentary with Chris Fowler, lead commentator, John McEnroe and Patrick McEnroe as the uh, the color commentators. And if I'd just been listening to the commentary, I might have thought that the the match was an all but foregone conclusion in the middle of the first set when Nadal broke. Uh, in the at the end of the second set, when Nadal went up two sets to love, they were you know beginning to process what Nadal's victory would mean. Uh, when Nadal broke in the third set to go up two sets and a break, uh, it as far as the SPN crew was concerned was over. And then uh, Medvedev came back to win the set seven five. He won the fourth set 6-4 and I think a lot of the commentary was no one would have believed this and I'm really not sure that uh, the SPN crew really understands what a five-set match looks like. Daniel Medvedev I think does understand what a five-set match looks like. He's yet to win the match in five sets unfortunately for him that put put him at 0-5 but I think he came into the match an underdog, and he came in with a game plan. And from early on, I thought he was executing it. Now, that doesn't mean that you're going to win if you execute a game plan, but he, I thought he played a strategic match. It was fascinating to watch uh, and very enjoyable. So uh, 
I'll turn the the mic across to to Mert. But I thought uh, Medvedev played a smart match, and obviously Nadal at the end came through as he so often does and put number nineteen in the books uh, in in his column. Andrew, I um, uh, you summarized it very well. And uh, another thing that Medvedev did very well, I wrote an article uh, prior on the Tennis XM Premium series, uh, prior to the beginning of the um, of the uh, of the tournament. That the, the, the title was "Is anybody ready to step forward, or anyone ready to step forward?" And what I was referring to there is all is is the non-big three players. And which one of them was willing to perhaps do something different in the sense that not stick necessarily with their uh, main guns, which have which seems to be just hard hitting from the baseline, and rather come forward and challenge the big three to not just feel the pressure uh, from the baseline or having to rally long, but also come up with precise shots and passing shots. When they when they when they're put under pressure, and uh, it's it looked by the end of the tournament it looked like nobody really was willing to do that except Medvedev, and he wasn't even willing to do that himself until set three. Now I don't know if we uh, we want to get into the details of the of the of the finals right here, but uh, but uh, I I can if if you'd like me to. What is the Saki? What is the uh, plan here? No, I think. Uh, um, Definitely, there's no plan. But I would, I was gonna put this uh, question to you. But Andrew, I think, uh, put pointed out the strategic uh, output of uh, you know this match. And I was listening to radio because you guys probably were watching the match. And Mark Noel said that Nadal came with a plan B, and he was hitting his ground strokes uh, with little less velocity because he was worried about or he was prepared well enough to see what Medvedev can do. And I know, Mert, you're always a guy of plan A and plan B. So did you notice that? And secondly, were you surprised that a plan B was put uh, uh, first by Rafa? Was that a token of respect, what Medvedev can do strategy-wise? He can change the pace. He can, you know, hit some junk balls. So did you notice that, what uh, Mark Knowles pointed out? And uh, do you agree in this kind of a match sometime you can put a plan B first? Yes. For example, what Rafa did unusually... Uh, what, uh, what he did that was unusual was he hit these high loopy top spins or, or top spin shots, or he mixed them at least in in the, you know in his rallies. He, it's not that he would not go for his shots; he would still go for his shots. But once in a while, when he's pushed back, when Medvedev hit his flat drives to the corners, he would respond with these high top spins. But why was he able to do that? Because Medvedev was not willing to come in, or when he put. Uh, Rafa on the run, he was not willing to follow those shots up up to the net. So it was so all Rafa had to do was loop it back in and not give Medvedev much pace and make him hit high shots where he had to get he had to he had to make contact above the shoulder level, and uh, and therefore it worked. It worked for two sets, and then he would have probably won it had had Medvedev himself not gone ahead and started changing his. Uh, is his tactics, uh, which was to come to the net. Now, I, I would like to, you know, break down a little bit this concept of, of moving forward. I'm not saying that Medvedev or anyone else who wants to get through the big three should all of a sudden start, you know, making their plan, hey, get to the net as quick as you can. No, 
I mean, we're not looking for a column that as well here. It was, it was a name from the past. We used to just come in on everything, but but rather just at least not pass up on opportunities that 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 are presented to you. Now I'm going to give you guys uh, two um, two two examples here, or one one example involving two sets. Uh, we're, I'm going to take into account sets one and three. And if you look at the stats, and this is where just looking at the stats or mentioning stats sometimes fails or even uh, presents the wrong picture. You look at the uh, net points one stat in, in set number one versus set number three. Medvedev won or, or Medvedev ended up at the net 17 times in the first set. In the, sec in the third set that he won, he ended up at the net 12 times. So he's 12 of 17 in the first set. He's 8 of 12 in the third set. And you're sitting there thinking, well, he played, he played more aggressively in the first set and he stayed back more in the third. On the contrary, here are, and this is when the picture changes, when you start getting into the, um, into the, um, into the details. And out of those 17 points where Medvedev ended up at the net, five of them were forced. In other words, Rafa either hit a drop shot, so Medvedev had to, had to run forward and he didn't have any shorts but end up at the net, or Rafa maybe hit a miss hit that landed so short that it would have been ridiculous for Medvedev, who just sprinted forward inside the service line to run back. So Medvedev only came to the net out of his own volition 12 times in the first set. Guess how many times that I sat and watched both sets today again to make sure that I had my numbers right. He passed up 19 chances to come to the net. And when I say that, I'm talking about shots where he was clearly set inside the baseline. Rafa was recovering from a corner and Medvedev had a clear shot at one of the corners for either a clean winner or an, or an approach shot and come to the net. And he was already inside this baseline himself. He passed up 19 of those. And, and they all happened in 16 points because in one, in three of the points, he had two of them that he passed up. Five, he passed up five of those in the first four games alone. So Medvedev came into the match still planning to play his A game, which is to stay back at the baseline mostly and, and, and uh, hit flat shots or hit deep shots and keep the ball in play and hopefully, you know, wear the other person out and, and only come to the net when forced. Now, move fast forward to the third set. He's, he, he approached, uh, the, the, it says the net points won 8 of 12. Now, I counted, the official stat does, I counted 14 times, I'm sorry, 15 times that he approached the net. So I am assuming that some of these points where he actually hit the approach, but it turned into a winner, so he never had to hit a volley, maybe they didn't count it. But in any case, he, he approached 15 times to the net, 14 of those were deliberate approaches. They were not forced. He chose to come in. So he, uh, so he came in, in in set three more out of, uh, out of his own volition than he did in, in, in set one. And he only passed up 10 chances to come in uh, in, the, um, in the third set. Three of them coming in in the first point of five all. So he really only passed up chances to come in in seven points in that third set versus 15 in the first set. So he clearly adopted a more aggressive strategy in the third set. He served and volleyed six times, most of them coming after four all in the third set. In all of first set, he served and volleyed once. 
So he, he went through a clear um, a change of tactics in set three, which I thought was one set too late, to be honest. I, I, I felt that he should have done that in the second set already. No, I think that's well said. He's definitely not uh, afraid to mix it up and change things up. So Matt, let me just bring you here. You wrote an excellent piece for our website today where you said Rafa Nadal won the tournament, but Medvedev stole the tournament. So just along uh, his strategic net play, uh, why don't you talk about how Medvedev won over the crowd and some of his critics? For And he, he pretty much grew in front of our eyes in this in this past six weeks, and especially in the U.S. Open. So talk about how he, you know, grown, how he grew as a tennis player and as, you know, as now he's a celebrity. I mean, there's a lot of focus when you play in New York. You can't escape that. So talk about that. Well, you know, in terms of this being Medvedev's tournament, uh, I wrote that piece through a specific reference point of, you know, the, our, our impressions of the final, this men's final, changed distinctly midway through. You know, when Nadal was serving 3-2 up and a break in the third set, up two sets, you know, most people probably would have said, okay, this is a done deal. It's, this is inevitable now. Uh, you know, not at the start of the match, but after Rafa had was up two sets and a break, people, you know, a lot of people certainly assumed that this was over. And obviously Medvedev was very close to getting a break lead in the fifth set. So this turned out to not be inevitable. So the fact that the match and its our impressions of it changed midway through, that's a perfect metaphor for what Danil Medvedev has done the past six weeks. And it's, and it started not in Canada, but in Cincinnati in that Djokovic semifinal, which was really the eye-opening moment when a lot of people in and around tennis, I'll, I'll include myself among them, went, oh, this is not just a wall. This is not just a retriever. This is someone who can not only hit different kinds of shots when he chooses to or use different kinds of tactics, he can put on a, an entirely different set of clothing and become a completely different person. I mean, the Medvedev in the first set against Djokovic, actually first set and a half, uh, he was his Jaloux 2.0 identity. Just try and chase everything down, outlast Djokovic in rallies, and then with, with, with fatigue beginning to set in, given all the tennis that he had played, he definitely just flipped on a switch, completely changed his mindset, and he became Nick Kyrgios, Redlining second serves, playing a super aggressive game, playing very short points, and not only implementing that, but doing it successfully, which is which is entirely an entirely different and higher layer of excellence. Not just having the the uh, audacity to try something completely different, but to do it well, and that that was a remarkable performance, and it's going to be a continued reference point to Medvedev in 2020 and really for the rest of his career. And we, we've seen that in New York on a number of occasions, uh, most notably before the final in the first set against Vafarenka when he turned into a drop shot demon. He became Albert Portis, uh, a man uh, Mert Ertunga uh, wrote about uh, earlier this summer for us at Tennis with an Accent. He was just you know dumping drop shots left and right on Vafarenka, and he wiggled out of trouble in that first set, which was huge because Medvedev was really fighting it physically, and, and Vafarenka, as we uh, were, were to learn later, um, you know, was ill. That first set was enormous, uh, kind of in much the same way that 
Roger Federer needed that first set against Xavier Molise in the fourth round of 2012 at Wimbledon. He really needed that first set to steer his fragile body through that match. So Medvedev has just had the guts of a burglar, and and he's that 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 representation of of um, tactical fearlessness. Um, it, it, it's manifested itself at several points, but the Djokovic Cincinnati match was the starting point, and then we've seen. Uh, Medvedev, you know, change his tactics as Mert was outlining in this final. Um, he played a different kind of game in the latter half of the match. Uh, so the, the, the fact that this final changed in terms of our impressions of it, in terms of the contours, it just is a perfect representation for this larger theme of change uh, that Medvedev has created um, at the U.S. Open and over these past several weeks. The other, the other note, Socket, that I have to tuck in is that in terms of the larger historical context and significance of this match, the, the, the match that I continue to go back to is Djokovic's 2010 U.S. Open final against Nadal. This match really reminded me of that. Now, obviously, this is a 33-year-old Nadal, not a 24-year-old Nadal, which Djokovic was playing, but I'm talking more about Nadal's opponent. And, uh, you know, Djokovic was 23, when he played that 2010 U.S. Open final, and he learned, even though even in defeat, he learned that he could go toe to toe with Rafa, and that filled him up with a lot, lot of belief. As had as did his um, the first match in which he saved uh, two match points against Federer to major in that 2010 U.S. Open semifinal, and then later that year with the, at the Davis Cup, those three events, Federer semi, Rafa final, and the Davis Cup in late 2010, those were the foundations of the building of the Djokovic empire leading to 15 major titles, the most of any man this, this past decade, you know, which has just ended at the majors. So I'm not going to say that jo that Medvedev is going to win 15 majors in the 2020s, anything, but nevertheless, the comparison he evoked is very strong. And now we get to see how joke, how Medvedev does or doesn't build on this particular moment in his career. Yeah, if I may jump in here, Matt, I, I love listening to you. Things per, per, put things into perspective always, and or or when you're right, and uh, you are right. I mean, he's, he's as a player, his anticipation is great. I think I think everybody can sense that his mental growth is extraordinary. And I mean, do, those who have followed his career can tell you that uh, that he he used to lose his cool headedness at that in certain matches. Um, so you can call it adjusting to big crowds or, or mental growth through the last two or three months. But uh, in the semifinals and the finals, he played like Borg used to play, just very ice cool, no emotion. And uh, so, so it's not just his game that, uh, that, that has improved. And, and he, has, he has a lot of uh, different uh, tactics in his arsenal, just like Matt pointed out. Uh, but he he also improved um, you know, his his his, me his mental condition. But and going back to that first and and third set comparison I made just a second ago, you know uh, Rafa won that first set seven five and Medvedev won the third set seven five. And I and I was underlining the fact that uh, he you know he he started being more aggressive, and and gave you the numbers on uh, on net point, on how many times he, he was willing to approach and how many chances he passed on. But let's not forget on the back uh, background of those numbers that Rafa played a much better third set than he did in the than the first. It, 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 Rafa started the match actually uh, quite average. He he lost the first his the first two games that Rafa lost 
were on forehands that they, that he hit to the bottom of the net. How many times do you see that uh, from him? So he was he was making mistakes. That's why uh, the fact that Medvedev stayed back and kept on uh, passing chances to come in uh, allowed Rafa to stay in the match and and eventually win that uh, win that uh, uh, first set. I mean, look, Rafa uh, uh, hit more winners and led made less on four stairs and played with a drastically better first serve percentage in the third set than it did in the first. But Medvedev won the third set just because he was willing to make that adjustment and, and, and get more aggressive and put the pressure on Rafa. When you serve in volley a few times, when you start coming in, your opponent feels the pressure even if you're not coming in later. It's a long-term effect. That's why Rafa had to raise his level in the third, fourth, and fifth sets because I believe that Rafa didn't have to play his A game all the way to the third set of the final or even the fourth set. And in the fourth set, Medvedev was completely uh, aggressive and played his best set of the final and sent it to a fifth set where Rafa raised his level a little bit more in terms of running down every single ball. But Rafa didn't play his, his, uh, his A game all the way to the finals. I thought at one point, and I even tweeted this after the first set, that Rafa was going to win the, win the tournament never playing his A game. So Medvedev pushed him to that. So I'm going to respectfully disagree, Mert, and say that I actually thought that Medvedev came in with a plan, and part of the plan, and, and I think you've both mentioned this a little bit, was to see if he could take away Rafa's legs. Rafa often starts championship finals nervous uh, against Djokovic and against Federer. He's done this. And then very often by the second set, he's he found his game. So I think that uh, Medvedev played the first two sets to try and uh, get to Nadal's legs, which given the, um, the conventional wisdom about Nadal, you could tell that the ESPN crew weren't buying it. But Nadal is 33 and he's got less in his legs now than he had in 2010. The thing that turned around the uh, rivalry with Djokovic was that Djokovic showed that he could hang with him. And I think that Medvedev thought that if he just goes kamikaze against Nadal in the first two sets, then Nadal is going to find his range and uh, he, he won't be well positioned for sets three and four. So I think that Medvedev hoped to split one of the, the, the first two sets. He would have hoped to win won both of them. Uh, the key thing was, though, that when he did um, start pressing forward, he had reduced uh, the spring in Nadal's step. So I think that there was a game plan to this. The match that this reminded me the most of was actually uh, Federer beating Chilich in the 2018 Australian Open final, which also went to five sets, where the younger player had chances early in the fifth set, but then the veteran managed to stabilize it and, and, and take the fifth set. And just as then, the, um, the veteran had had a, a relatively straightforward draw up to the final set, up to the final match rather, and, and just about managed to get over the, the finish line at the end. So deserves saluting for it. But I, I genuinely feel that 
uh, Medvedev came in with a plan and executed the plan. And yes, there were some tactical adjustments, but uh, I could see it in the context of having a strategy for the whole match. And I'll also say that five setters aren't won in the first two sets. Uh, having seen Federer go down to Anderson last year in the Wimbledon uh, quarterfinal, having match point two sets up, I don't know why we forget that. I think it's so. very well said, Andrew. Uh, just to keep everyone honest, eh, we don't do this kind of exercise in this podcast. I'll just get opinions because fans are going to tune in. Where does match uh, rank for all three of you? you can uh, Matt, you can go first. Is an all-time classic, but this decade has seen many physical matches, many great matches. Uh, I know there's a recency effect right now. It's less than 24 uh, hours old match. So what do you think? Where does this rank in your terms of greatness, or is it epic? Uh, where is it? What, what's the status for you for this match? Is it an instant classic? Uh, I don't think it rises to the level of a classic. Uh, the the sluggish first set. And the fact that there was a lot of very tired tennis, I thought, in the fourth set. I think in the fourth set, there were a lot of medium pace rallies with two men who were both feeling it and both trying to, you know, make the other guy miss. Uh, I thought that that uh, the third set uh, and, and then the way the fifth set was fought, th- those were particularly impressive sets. And there certainly were a lot of highlight real points but this was and and i really like andrew mentioning the 2018 australian open final because that was also an up and down match uh it wasn't the same in the sense that uh you know Federer had a strong first set chillich had a strong second Federer had a strong third chillich had a strong fourth it really was a seesaw match whereas this was more rafa in the first two and a half sets then medvedev had a really strong uh two sets uh, but then Nadal had the final answer late. Um, so it wasn't the same match flow. But in terms of like the uneven pockets, you rarely had prolonged stretches when both men were playing well at the same time. And I think that is a central requirement for a classic. Now, while while I would say that this isn't a classic, I would also say that this is a deeply resonant match and it's a match we remember now and we are going to remember it and talk about it 15 to 20 years from now already already we know this because of what it means for rafa and how hard he had to fight to win this 19th major title so i mean that 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 gives this match a certain degree of permanence um, in the tennis landscape but the, the 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 half we don't yet know about is what this match is going to mean on the Medvedev side. And so if Medvedev does have a, a memorable career, even just like seven, eight majors, you know, somewhere in the McEnroe, Connors, Lendl, Agassi range, this match is going to grow in stature and we're definitely going to be talking about it 30, 40, 50 years from now. Oh. Murray, do you want to take that? Uh, what's your take? Where does this match rank in the pantheon of this last decade? I had two takes that I thought were great and original, and uh, Matt mentioned both of them. So um, he t- he stole my thunder. Yes, <laughs> so I don't have anything to add. Especially the last thing that Matt said is uh, is, is is an excellent point. You know, we at this point we may not think this is a a classic, and uh, may, and it probably will never become a classic. Although it's a great match to watch, especially for people who want to study uh, you know tactical changes or or mental strength. 
But uh, yes, in 10 years, if Medvedev ends up having a tremendous career over the next 10 years, this, this match, of course, becomes important from his perspective. Yeah, and if we look at if we look at five set um, Grand Slam men's finals over the last decade, um, I wouldn't put this higher than the Wimbledon final this year. Um, I don't think I would put it. I, I think I would put it at the same level as the the Federer Chilich final. I don't think I'd have put it as high as the the Federer and Nadal uh, 2017 final, which was not their best five-set final. Um, I don't think I'd have put it as high as the, the Djokovic-Federer five-set final at Wimbledon in 2015. Um, 2014. Uh, sorry, 20, 2014, I beg your pardon. 2015 was a four-setter. Uh, you know, uh, Certainly as good as the, the Murray Djokovic uh, U.S. Open final uh, that, that Murray won in five sets. So in terms of the, the, the overall tennis quality, um, a lot, a lot, there were a lot of long points and there were, there were quite a few quad screamers, as I call them. You know, they're just, uh, they're, their legs were killing them. But in terms of, you know, Matt, had the the main point which was if you have both players playing well at the same time that's what you that's what you really want to see and there wasn't enough of that i think uh on sunday for it to qualify as an immediate classic all right so i think we'll talk more about the extra factor that make this tournament in this final remarkable which is a crowd and how you know the networks cover it but uh, since we are still with andrew uh, Andrew, I want to ask you this because we've spoken at this forum and use your generation analysis. So this decade is in the books now. When this decade started, uh, Roger Federer won the first tournament and he almost won the second last tournament of the de this decade. And Rafa Nadal won the f first three of the first four tournaments and then he also won the last tournament of the decade. So uh, since you've done this thesis and you know it's a growing thesis, a work in progress every time a record goes in the books. So talk about how you look back is this decade on the men's side? Yeah, I mean, you you basically have to give the decade, you know, first of all, um, to Djokovic, who I don't know exactly how many titles he's won in the decade, but, but I think he's the clear leader, followed by Nadal, and then Federer, um, as you say, won the first title very nearly uh, within two match points of uh, the the penultimate one. Um, then Murray, Vavrinka, but the from a generational standpoint, it's basically the players who weren't there. Now I hope we'll get on to the the WTA side of the tournament, but somebody pointed out that the. Uh, on the WTA side, we've had a champion now born in the 2000s, Bianca Andreescu. And during the 2010s, we didn't have a single men's champion born in the 1990s or the 2000s. So uh, Marin Cilic, who won the US Open five years ago and will be 31 later this month, is still the youngest living ATP Grand Slam winner. 
Um, you have the group that I call Generation Grigor, whose date of birth is 1989 to 1993. They qualified for four Grand Slam finals and won just one set. That was team um, earlier this year at Roland Garros. Team is the only player uh, born in the 1990s to have gotten to two Grand Slam finals. And team is um, 26 this year. So you, you, you have a situation where the, the narrative of the 2010s has been first around the big four, more recently the big three as Murray's battled really deep injury woes and, and I don't know that Murray will come back and challenge for the biggest prizes of the sport. That's going to be one of the stories of, of the year to come, 2020. Um, but on the men's side, it really is a question of how long can the big three keep on playing? And then if you look at the two younger members of the big three, Nadal and Djokovic, Nadal is at 19 Grand Slam titles, Djokovic at 16. A lot of people are starting to say, well, at the, at the end of the day, is Roger Federer going to be third on the all-time Grand Slam list in four or five years' time? And we don't know. There's a lot of tennis still to be played. Federer can win some more titles. Nadal can. Djokovic can. But we're still asking. Now, maybe Medvedev is one of the players who will do it. Maybe Zverev or Tsitsipas. Maybe one of the even younger players like uh, Ogial Yassine. But you're still asking, when is when is the next generation of players going to break through? No, that's very well captured, Andrew. And uh, I know we still have uh, to talk about Andrescu and Serena Williams on the women's side, but I have to ask this. And uh, Matt, you can go first. Uh, this decade, Rafa Nadal won four US Open titles, and we all remember when the decade started. He was trying his best to break through at the US Open. And if somebody had told us after his loss to Juan Martin Del Potro, Roger Federer would never win a U.S. Open, that, was, that would have been a staggering stat and a very hard stat to believe. So, Matt, what has happened in this tournament Why uh, the tide has clearly shifted? Of course, it didn't happen overnight. It happened for 10 years. Nadal had won four tournaments. Djokovic has won this thing three times. And Roger Federer, uh, after losing to Juan Martin Del Potro, appeared only in one final. So talk about that stat. Well, it's, you know, what's, what has been well known in the tennis community, uh, uh, chiefly in relationship to big three discussions, uh, has been Rafael Nadal's Australian Open curse. You know, retiring against Ferrer in the quarters, having to uh, play the 2014 final against Bafrinka when compromised. He led Chilich in the 2018 quarterfinals, but then his, his an injury uh, sank him there. He's had so many injury-related misfortunes in Australia. I mean, heck, Tomas Birdik beat him in the quarterfinals of the Australian Open, and that never would have happened if Rafa was fully fit. I mean, no asterisks, as uh, one of our uh, panelists is fond of saying, but nevertheless, Nadal has had some eerily surreal bad luck at the Australian Open. And that's been known because that goes back, that history goes back like around a decade. Um, but what has happened in the past few years has been that Roger Federer has very quickly, uh, sneakily accumulated a U.S. Open curse. 
didn't play in 2016, carried back spasms into the 2017 event, got absolutely swamped by the soaring heat index and the lack of air circulation inside Arthur Ashe Stadium against Millman in 2018, and then this flare-up. You know, he was fine leaving the court against Goffin, you know, a very easy, not very taxing match, and somehow he picked up this, this, uh, this uh, upper back problem and he, he, he said after the match, this is going to be a thing that, you know, was, is going to be there for like 48 hours or so, and then I'm going to be better. And he had two days off between the quarterfinal and a possible Friday semifinal against Medvedev, and he just couldn't get through Grigor in his limited condition. So he's had nasty luck the last four seasons, and it's really kind of a late career U.S. Open curse. He has not had these problems at the other three major tournaments. So, I mean, that, that, that is, uh, is one part of it. And then we have to address the Nadal element too, Sakib. And, you know, he's won two of the last three U.S. Opens. Uh, and that's despite, you know, either missing tournaments or being injured at, at this tournament as well. Um, you, you missed it outright in 2012 and 2014. Um, was at very low ebb in 2015 when he lost to Fanini. Uh, still wasn't all the way back, didn't have his confidence back in 2016. But here he is. He's won two of the last three. And I would compare, you know, I think that the fact that Medvedev pushed him so hard in this final really put this U.S. Open in a different category. You know, it's what this wasn't entirely the ocean breeze that, I, you know, it, it looked like when he was uh, up at two sets and a break in the third. Um, you know, it, the, Andrew made the salient comparison with the 2018 Australian Open for Fed. Those are like the two comparisons there. But uh, Rafa's 2017 U.S. Open, that was very much like Federer's 2017 Wimbledon. You know, did, did not get the best challenge uh, from anyone uh, it, over the course of seven matches. Uh, and, um, you know, just the opponents either weren't that strong might have put up a temporary fight or his opponents were credentialed, but they didn't play great. And so Rafa never really had to be, uh, you know, ominously strong at that 2017 U.S. Open. And that final against Kevin Anderson, God bless Kevin Anderson for getting that far. It was a great achievement. It will remain a great achievement for him because so many of his peers have not done something like that. But nevertheless, that final was the foregone conclusion, unlike the Medvedev match. And that was just a tournament where Nadal's ability to look at 2015 and 2016, those two years that were the dark night of his tennis soul, for him to just to come back from that, for him to be resilient on a larger scale, he was rewarded, in, in essence, for that resilience. And I think in many ways, Federer's 2017 Wimbledon was much the same way. It was a way of tennis paying him back not only for his longevity, but also for his perseverance after being very unlucky and coming very close to winning Wimbledon uh, in 2014. And then after you know, being very close to beating Raonic in the 2016 semifinals, but suffering that injury, you know, Federer was, was very unlucky in, in that regard. Uh, just being able to get back on his feet after the, the seven-month injury layoff, he was rewarded for being there. He, he he demonstrated that 88% of life and tennis is showing up. So Rafa winning these U.S. Opens late in his career, it's a reward for his longevity. And meanwhile, Federer's U.S. Open curse really is a, a new thing, but it's something that we have to recognize now. 
All right. So I think that's going to be a talking point. And I think you, you kind of captured, you know, two parallel stories for both these uh, players. So, Mert, let me bring you in as the last question, I think, before we switch to the women. We have to talk about the most dominant player of this decade, Novak Djokovic. A shoulder, you know, injury, uh, you know, made him withdraw in his, uh, retire in his match against Wawrinka. But as a new uh, decade ushers upon us, he still remains a man to beat, uh, provided good health. Yes, he is. And, and what, uh, what is extraordinary about his achievement throughout the 2010s is that I'm going to stick to the, to, to the game uh, side of, uh, of, of, of the man rather than um, everything else that comes along with it. He's, uh, he has improved all facets of his game tremendously. You know, he had, if you remember back in 2011, the, um, you know, the, the, he had a, that phenomenal start to 2011, and he, he had a great year. If you, you know, if you look at Djokovic's career, the, 2000, the, season, the 2011 season will go down as one of his best, and he was virtually unbeatable for, uh, all the way until Roland Garros when he lost to uh, Roger Federer in the semis. And even in that year, in, in that uh, extraordinary year that he had, you look at his game and his serve was just then starting to improve. It used to be a liability before. He, would, there were, he played a lot of matches where he would double fault more than he would ace. So his serve wasn't a weapon by any means. His volleys were average at best. Uh, I might even go below average uh, around, around that time. And he was just a great mover and a very uh, solid baseline player. And then his returns, as, as, good, as good as they were back then, they were not as uh, efficient as they are now. So, uh, you know, that's in 2011. And then as the years went by, he little by little added. And he didn't, he didn't he, you know, he, he used to not do much slicing or drop shotting. Little by little, he improved his serve. He became a better aggressive player. He improved his uh, his variety. He can slice the backhand now, and and he even improved uh, his net game. He can he comes into the net and he may, and he puts away a lot of tough volleys. You know his, his technique is not necessarily a natural technique. He still comes across a little bit artificial trying to block the ball at the net, but he places them well, and it's all a product of hard work and belief, and a lot of hours on 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 the practice course. So uh, it's it's a it's a player that keeps adding to his game even at this point and chances are he will keep adding to his game over the next few years too and this is why i find it a little bit uh, hard for anyone else to break through because here we are in 2019 and uh, and once again you know there are a lot of even the, even the new generation players still think that they can just uh, you know go out and, and hit from the baseline and defeat the big three and Djokovic is a great example to give here uh, you know, take guys like Berrettini uh, or, or a young guy like Berrettini, for example, in this tournament, he still tried to out-hit Rafa. He almost pulled it off for one set. He, he probably should have won the first set, but could he have pulled it off, pulled off that for three sets, just trying to out-hit Rafa and hit winners from the baseline? I don't think so. You know, Chilich pulled it off for one set against Rafa, but look what happened in the other three sets. And, and that's why it's very important that these up-and-comers, if they want to challenge Novak or the, or, 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 or the other two, they have to learn to play an all-around game and be willing to take risks. And, uh, that, and, and again, that's what uh, you know, I felt like Medvedev did in uh, starting with the third set. 
and that's why he got through to Nadal. And uh, otherwise, uh, you know, Nadal, Djokovic, and Federer keep improving their games too. It's not it's not just a matter of the, the you know the young people catching up, but these these guys are running away. And Novak Djokovic is a great example of that. How much he has improved his game even after the 2014 to 2016 period where he was unbeatable. Hmm. Uh, that definitely is not the issue in the women's side because we've had a uh, few breakout players uh, winning majors from starting from Osaka last year and then uh, uh, Bardi and Andrescu. So, Andrew, uh, there was an interesting uh, DM thread uh, in our Tennis with an Accent, you know, uh, DMs where you said Andrescu, Osaka and uh, uh, Bardi could be, you know, could be the next generation of women's tennis where you could have multiple slam winners among these three. So why don't you elaborate on that, and then uh, we can make a shift to the uh, Williams and Andrescu final. Yeah, I think that um, the you know first of all, uh, when we think of the big three in ATP tennis, you look over at the WTA, and there's there's really a big one there, which is Serena Williams, who was going for her twenty fourth. Grand Slam. There's some controversy over whether you give Margaret Court all the 24 titles, many of which she won at the Australian Open before the Open era began. But 24 is a marker point, and Serena Williams was close, um, except that as with the uh, many of the other finals that she's played recently, she she just didn't bring her A game on the day. Uh, Serena didn't show up, she said, but Andrescu did. And Andrescu, I think, along with Barty, is a player who potentially heralds a return of sorts to a more all-court game, a more varied game, one that uses slice as well as power, one where the serve sets up the, the next shot rather than being perhaps more return-dominated. And I was taking a look at the statistics of players born in the 1990s who've uh, won Grand Slam tournaments, and none of them has been to more than four finals, and none of them has won more than two. So in the last um, you know, five or six years or so, We've been waiting for a, a multi-slam winner to, to come along. Halip won her second this year, but it, it, it's, it's really hard to see Halip going on a kick and winning six to ten or more Grand Slams by the time her career is over. If she proves me wrong, come back and, and tell me about it. Whereas Osaka and Andrescu I think have that mix of the 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 power game and the the point construction to put themselves right at the top of the list. I'm not sure about Barty. Again, her game is so interesting and varied and she's clearly thinking about it in terms of improvement and the long term rather than you know one off I'm a grand slam winner. Um, that satisfies my career aspirations. Um, so one of Andrescu, 
uh, Osaka, possibly Barty, uh, could become a, a five to ten Grand Slam winner or better. Hmm. Yeah, that's definitely uh, a trend that we're going to be following. Uh, so, Matt, let me bring you in uh, uh, for one more question uh, before, you know, I know you, you may have to sign up before we wrap this up, but... Uh, yeah, I'll be good, actually. Okay. So, again, I, I'll bring my, my fandom into this. Uh, when Serena Williams, you know, was playing Andrescu, I was just trying to reminisce this to the two Sampras losses at the U.S. Open when he lost to Safin and Hewitt. I'm saying, you know, I didn't expect that to happen back then. And I thought Serena's going to win one of these when she started making that comeback against Andrescu. Uh, do you feel in the last two finals was a different trend? Was she overpowered? Was she outplayed? Or was it kind of the similar treatment she received against these two young phenomenal ball strikers? Uh, uh, try to compare the two finals and leave just uh, just just on the tennis not what happened last year. Well, I would say, Sakib, that in all four of these recent finals, you know, after becoming a mom, Kerber and uh, and Osaka last year, Wimbledon U.S. Open, and then this year, Halep and um, Andrescu, all four of Serena's opponents have played really, really well. They were all at the top of their game, all really on point in terms of tactics, and but more especially. Uh, execution and being able to do what they wanted. And when, when, when an opponent throws down her very best level of tennis, what, what does Serena need? She needs the serve to be dominant, you know, cause that has rescued her so many times over the course of a career. And, and I'm going to write about this at tennisaccent.com. I haven't done it yet, but I'm going to write about it this week and kind of wrapping up this tournament and, and Andrescu's championship. The thing that we forget uh, as tennis observers about the serve, it's not just that you hit a big serve on a big point and you win the point. There's something else that a big serve does, and that is if you're shaky off the ground, a, a huge, an ace or an unreturnable of some kind, it, re it takes away that pressure for you to have to hit a ground stroke. You know, if you're, if you're in any way struggling. So the serve isn't just, the most direct way to win a big point, uh, it also can save you when other facets of your game aren't operating the best. And Serena has so many times done precisely that to get out of trouble. And when, when an opponent establishes a really high standard, she needs that. And, and she has not had that in any of these four major finals. So I don't regard this as... Um, Serena being too caught up in the emotions of the moment, though I think she that that you know calibrating her emotions has been something that that she does need to address if she gets back to another major final. I mean, I think that it it is an issue, but it's not the issue. The issue is that her opponents have played incredibly contained, composed matches, and you you just have to tip the cap. And I and I would say that. You know, Serena at age 32, 33 probably would be more easily able to call upon her very best. And at 37, 38, it's just not as easy to do so. And a lot like Roger Federer, she just needs a few little extra things to go her way in order to get that extra advantage. And Kerber, Osaka, Halep, and Andrescu have all not allowed those extra few things to go her way. 
Yeah, that's definitely been the case. Serena Williams coming 0-8 in you know, sets one in the last four finals. So, Mert, from the coach's corner point of view, uh, talk to the listeners and uh, try to just give some nuance on what Andrescu's game is all about because her, I think her ball-striking ability is seen as her biggest strength. She can really hit the ball hard. Uh, is she a player who comes with many plans? Is she so well-versed or is it too early? Uh, to say, you know, what what could be the weakness here? Because right now, all she touches is gold. No, she does have uh, pretty much every stroke that you can think of, and she's shown it in her matches too throughout throughout the year. Uh, she, you, in fact, you name a shot, and uh, and you ask me if she has it, and my answer will probably be yes. She can hit that shot. Uh, you know, it, it, I was I was I was particularly watching for the uh, for the for the serve placement. On uh, in the in their in her semifinals match and in her final match and and in both of those she can hit that she can even hit that slice serve to the outside with extreme consistency which is uh, which is quite surprising you know that's usually one of the last serves that uh, that that players master you know they usually master the flat serve to to, to the to the to the tee or the hard serve to the body the kick serve even the, the the curving serve into the body from the from the from the ad side making the returner feel the right-handed returner feel like they have to hit a backhand but the ball curves into their body and then and then later will come this serve that you can serve to the outside and when i say serve to the outside i don't mean the corner of the of the service box you can hit a, hit hit a hard serve to the outside corner of the box and just earn an ace from a hard serve well placed hard serve i'm talking about the off speed slice serve that curves to the outside of the court and then she's even able to hit that so i uh, uh, at this point i don't really see much weakness on uh, on her game uh, perhaps i i do believe that her footwork could could still improve you know she's got great anticipation and she's got great reach uh, but i do believe that like her first step at at, uh, at certain points could get better because she's having to reach for some of these for, for some of those balls, but but I'm really neat nitpicking here. I'm going deep in the nitpicking uh, machine she, here. To is come she an all-court player? Huh? Is she someone who can play on clay? Yes, she can play on clay. Absolutely, she's got the game to play. She's got the game. In fact, she has a game that's quite fit for it. She she can drop shot. She's got slice on her backhand, and she's she can hit top spin on her forehand too. So one of the qualities of a good clay court player. It's not just touch, but but heavy topspin to go with it, and and she can do that on both sides. And she's not afraid to come to the net, which is a huge plus, uh, you know, in in the women's game. Uh, you know, if if you come to net to the net with success, you just take a look at what Taylor Townsend was able to do, and she's on the other extreme uh, of the of the barometer. But uh, but you're you're able to uh, to build some success. So I'm actually looking for a lot of. Um, uh, success to come Andrescu's way on, unless she gets injured. So, Andrew, Sock uh, let's Sock get, Sorry, Sock, I just want to jump in. Our friend Mike McIntyre with the Match Point Canada podcast, the official podcast of Tennis Canada. And, you know, Sock, if you had Mike on as a guest for our, this podcast a few weeks ago, Mike told me on Saturday evening that Andrescu says clay is her favorite surface. I'm not surprised. Good to know. So uh, let, let's talk about Belinda Bentis. She was another breakout player of this tournament. And again, in our DM threads, Andrew, you were a fan of the semifinal and you rated the semifinal quality of the Bentic-Andrescu match quite highly. So what impressed you in that match? Was it the dynamics you know, of uh, you know, the ball striking or what they both brought to the table? Was the contrast 
Uh, what stood out, Andrew, in your view? I'd just go back to uh, something that is very easy to remember is are both players playing well at the same time? And I thought that Bencic had a little bit of a lull after, um, you know, getting in the position to serve the second set and that, that allowed Andreescu to, to catch up to her. But for most of the match, you had uh, variety. You had um, a lot of really well-constructed points. And it was a pleasure to see Bencic um, doing well at a Grand Slam semi-final stage. Uh, she's one of 14 women this year to have uh, gotten to a Grand Slam semi-final. Uh, the two women who uh, played in more than one were on the opposite semi-finals, uh, Serena Williams and Alina Svitolina. Um, so the, the, the WTA doesn't yet uh, have the sort of stability that we've seen a lot in the ATP in the 2010s. That'll be something to look out for uh, in the next couple of years or so. But I thought that there were several matches in the, the WTA tournament this year which had um, players playing at a, a pretty high level against each other. And that was, the, that was the match in the later stages of the tournament that I enjoyed the most. Hmm. Yeah, definitely. It was, it was a fun match. And uh, I just wanted to get your views uh, while we have you on the podcast. So let's uh, take this last few minutes of the podcast to some generic topics, which are always resurfacing at these majors. And I know um, Mert and Matt, you just spoke about uh, Taylor Townsend. So Matt, let's talk about this. Susie, who's also on our regular Twitter DMs, uh, everybody's talking about Taylor Townsend's ability to come to the net. But uh, even Karen Williams, who was on the podcast last week, she said in this day and age, it's a not sustainable style of play. She has to mix it up because the balls and the surfaces and the string just doesn't allow you to come to the net on your own terms. So talk about that, Matt, as a tennis writer, how this trend of uh, surfaces either being consistently slow or medium pace doesn't really allow players to come you know, to the net on their terms. Well, you know, it's, it's a tricky discussion. I know that one of our contributors Contributors Nick Nemiroff has said that clay can often be the best surface for net rushing because the ball is, is slower to come back at you across the net, you know, if, especially if you're able to hit a good heavy top spin and back someone, you know, well behind the baseline, you you can come to the net if, if you have a good sense of the, the angle of the shot and you feel you can you can cut it off. So it's not a one size fits all, but I would say that you know on, on hard courts where the reliability of the bounce, you know, the bounce is cleanest on hard court compared to uh, the organic surfaces, clay and grass. And so be precisely because the bounce is more consistent, then, uh, you know, a, a, a person can line up a passing shot more readily. So in, in that regard, I'd certainly say yes, that, you know, agreeing with Karen Williams from last week's podcast, uh, that you do have to pick your spots. I think that uh, more than you know, getting to the net as many times as possible and using that as the framework for uh, an aggressive style of tennis. I think we, what we need to see more of is just the, the ability to hit every kind of shot. I mean, that's 
that's what Taylor Townsend needs to do. You know, she can't expect that Simona Halep is going to have that bad a day hitting passing shots. And Halep really just had a, I mean, you know, Townsend recognized that Halep was having a bad day. So it was smart of, of Townsend to continue to charge the net in that match. But Halep's not going to continue to have that bad a day if they if they meet in the future. So, she, yeah, she's going to have to change things up. And it, just, just to kind of use the uh, Rafa Medvedev final br- very briefly as an example, Rafa turned that match around in the fifth set with the slice. Uh, the slice got Medvedev off balance. It got him moving forward within the court. And to use Mert's reference, it, 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 made Mert, uh, it made Medvedev move up the court without wanting to. You know, he forced Medvedev to bend, to move inside the court. And then Rafa could hit uh, either a forehand into the uh, deuce corner or he could hit a backhand, uh, you know, in, in just deep into the court and get Medvedev off balance. So Townsend, as well as she plays at the net and as well as she angles off volleys, uh, the, the rest of the shots in her game uh, c- can still use work. And I think that's that's where she and a lot of other uh, pros need to focus, because if you can have that well-rounded arsenal, which Andrescu and Barty most conspicuously have, you know, then you can, can you have more options in constructing points and that will enhance your ability not just to finish at the net, but but to be able to pick the right times to come to the net. If that's that's something that often gets lost in net point uh, percentages. It might not mean that you're a great net player, but it, it, it more more regularly means that you're picking the right times to come to the net. You're picking the times when you have a really good chance to get an easy ball to hit, uh, knowing when to take advantage of that particular opportunity is a core nuance of net play. That's the kind of thing that Townsend needs to be uh, mindful of. Uh, Mert, do you want to add something to what Matt, you know, just uh, explained how, you know, net rushing is just not a dying art, but, you know, it's extremely difficult to pull off on your own terms. So let's take this conversation beyond Taylor Townsend, if you want to add something, how surfaces sometimes can be not too conducive for players to come to the net on the terms. Yes, the, I mean, one of the big reasons why we don't see, uh, you know, many serving volleys anymore over the last decade, decade and a half is because the surfaces have slowed down overall. And uh, it's become more, I guess, more homogenized, uh, if we want to call it that way. But uh, since the early 2000s, especially, uh, grass has slowed down considerably. And uh, and, and on hard courts, too, we, we used to have some tournaments on, on really fast courts that we don't have anymore. And I believe, if I'm not wrong, uh, the uh, U.S. Open has slowed down its surface, too, compared to uh, 10 or 15 years ago. So the, the the surface does make a difference. On, on I know that on the men's side, the balls have gotten a lot of a lot fluffier too. I think that's a big uh, that's an underrated issue. The fluffier balls have also caused uh, the game to slow down uh, the, even more than the surface, in my opinion. But others may may disagree. And also, players are able to hit you know with new technology are able to hit the ball harder, faster. Uh, take the ball earlier and still not miss it, uh, you know, catch the sweet spot of the racket, et cetera, and so forth. But I do have to, but but getting back to Townsend and then the idea of serving volleying not being sustainable, sure, I agree. I, I think if you serve and volley all the time, maybe at some point in a, in a major tournament out of seven opponents that you have to face, one of them will have, will figure out something to do and beat you. 
But I don't think we should, uh, you know, just simply look at Taylor Townsend's success and say you cannot sustain serve and volley per se. Yes, like Matt said, you should not maybe do it every point, but but be be selective. Which I think I think a player like Townsend should serve and volley in selective mode. It, it certainly did well for her, even though she served and volleyed almost all the time here. Let's not just look at this as Townsend beat Halep. She beat three other players too. You know, on the way to on the way to the fourth. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, two other players too on the way to the fourth round, and she gave the winner of the tournament a heck of a match in the fourth round. So I wouldn't call Townsend's serving volleying uh, game in this tournament a failure. I mean, not, of course, nobody calls it a failure, but even unsustainable. She sustained it pretty well. She ended she ended up losing in the third set to the winner. Who's to say she couldn't have gone further? So and, and and here's another thing too that I want to point out about Townsend is the slower surface actually helps a player like Townsend when they decide to serve in volley because she doesn't have a bang serve. She has rather a, a, a placement serve. Her curving serves give her time to get close to the net. And most of her volleys are touch volleys or aimed towards the sidelines. She's not your big server and a blocking hard volleyer like Stefan Edberg could do, for example, on the men's side. She's more of a touch volleyer. So the slower surface in a, some weird, quirky way actually works and worked in her favor in this tournament. Uh, but, but you know, that wouldn't be the case for, for all players, of course. But once again, going back to the idea of serving volleying, yes, maybe not every point, but, uh, but, but if a player chooses to play, say, half of our serving points, serving and volleying, I, uh, I, I wouldn't call that uh, unsustainable. She can, be, she can be successful. She was the only one to do it in the whole tournament. And, 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 and she got that kind of a success. Who's to say that if we had 15 players... Uh, play that one of them would not win the win the tournament. I mean, what is unsustainable? I guess is rather what we need to define. Do we call it unsustainable simply because a player doesn't win the tournament? What if uh, what if she went to the finals? Did she sustain that? So that's that's what needs to be defined. But I'm not so against the idea of players serving and volleying uh, on the women's side at all. I think it can be very effective because because you're going to end up putting people in spots that they've never been before. Okay, I think we covered quite a lot. So, Andrew, I'll bring you in for one more question here. Uh, every time when uh, Grand Slam men's final goes five, you know, there's Twitter, tennis Twitter uh, goes in total defense of uh, best of five should stay. We all are in favor of best of five. But what also gets overlooked in these best of five long matches is the physicality, you know, the, sh- the rally length, the physical beating players take. So, Andrew, I mean, talk about uh, in your analysis, where do you see uh, maybe can we go back and speed in the course a little bit so there's uh, an extent of, uh, you know, the longer rallies are there, but there's an extent of maybe matches ending in three and a half hours. Uh, is that a fact that's overlooked? Susie seems to think so. We've talked about it, you know, many times in our Twitter DM. So what's your view on the best of five and the correlation of uh, these longer physical matches? Well, yeah, I think that we've... We've touched on a few things. If you've got slower courts, if you've got fluffier balls, if you've got people who come up through the juniors with extreme grips and and basically learn that their way to break into the top 100 is by being consistent from the baseline, then you'll, you'll get attritional tennis. Uh, if they do decide to start speeding up the courts a bit if 
the conditions are right, potentially if the technology changes again a little bit, that allows a, a, a varied game um, to prevail. You'll have um, fewer players breaking down in their late 20s, uh, given the, the way that, that sports recovery science has advanced. Um, I feel very deeply in my heart that tennis is a three-dimensional game, that you see players running from side to side on the baseline. You can call that the x-axis. Then if you have players running forward into the court and to the net, that's kind of like the y-axis. And then you've got the z-axis or the z-axis, which is the height of the ball relative to the net. And if you have players using the variety of spin and you know, dipping the ball below the height of the net, particularly if you've got a player coming into the net, then you've got a three-dimensional game. Extreme topspin has made it harder for players uh, to have success net rushing because of how hard the ball dips. Um, Santoro famously said that uh, he couldn't understand how badly Federer was volleying against Nadal until he played Nadal and, and just got a sense himself of how viciously the ball was dipping. So it's possible that, um, you know, as we were saying, the, you know, net rushing as a, as a tactic will survive, but maybe a balanced game as opposed to side to side behind the baseline for, for 30 shots, rinse and repeat, and then six hours later, you're, you're getting towards the middle of the fifth set. If it, if it continues on those terms, I can't see best of five lasting uh, the next decade. So I hope it does last the next decade. And I hope to see more varied tennis in both the men's and women's game to go along with it. Hmm. I think we covered quite a lot. That's good food for thought for anyone who's listening in. A lot of ground was covered. So I'll just put uh, Matt Zemek back here. Matt, any parting thoughts before we wrap uh, this uh, episode, which covered the business end of the U.S. Open? Uh, I just want to point listeners who you know lit may, might listen to this podcast a little bit more than they check out our website to go ahead and check out our website, tennisaccent.com. And I want to draw a special spotlight to our Tennis Accent premium series of long reads pieces, all at least 1,900 words, if not more. So now the U.S. Open is over. It's a good time to catch up on that series. Uh, we've had some freelancers outside our normal range of contributors who uh, wrote pieces for this series. Uh, Ed Salmon, former podcast guest on this show, uh, at Fogmount on Twitter. He wrote about the WTA. Uh, Yesh Ginsberg. Uh, we also had Carlos Navarro, who's written pieces in English and Spanish. One on mental health in tennis, the other on the ITF World Tennis Tour and its demise, which had a lot of interviews with players. And then uh, Jane, our own Jane Voigt contributed to this series. Uh, Trenton Jock, uh, who uh, ha used to work with me at FanRag Sports. We both covered Wimbledon in 2017 for that media company, which since died, which catapulted me to Patreon and then here to tennis with an accent. Uh, he wrote about future ATP uh, breakthroughs at majors. And then Mert Ertunga, he wrote two installments. One he referred to earlier in this podcast on 
uh, ATP players stepping forward to challenge the big three. That was one of his pieces. But then the other piece he just wrote, uh, it was published on Monday uh, afternoon. Uh, Mert wrote a fascinating piece about the 1936 U.S. Nationals. You know, this was the U.S. Open starting in 1968 with the dawn of the open era of professional tennis. But before 1968, it was called the U.S. Nationals. And so Mert wrote about the 1936 final between two icons of the game, uh, Fred Perry of Britain and Don Budge of the United States. So definitely want to read that if you haven't seen it yet. Uh, and, and check out all the pieces part of our Tennis Accent Premium Series. I've tweeted them out at both my account and the Accent underscore Tennis tw Twitter account. So please read those pieces if you haven't already. Uh, it required a lot of effort, and it was also a chance for us at Tennis with an Accent uh, to pay Mert and other the other writers a, a living wage, I mean a market rate. Uh, for articles, um, and and that that's what your donated dollar can do for us. If you continue to to contribute um, to tennis with an accent, both the web the the website and the podcast, your dollars finance good journalism such as that. All right. So on that note, thanks for listening, uh, everyone. We'll be back with another episode. Uh, keep listening to tennis with an accent and drop uh, in reviews, drop in feedback. It's all welcome and. Mert, Andrew, Matt, thank you. It was a good conversation. I learned quite a lot as usual whenever this company is kept here in the podcast and uh, we should do this again. Thank you. Cheers, guys. <laughs>